Hello and welcome to Adrian Goldberg's talk show, this time a Brexit special and an interview with Dr David Nicholl, a consultant neurologist from Birmingham, who contributed to Operation Yellowhammer, the government's planning strategy for dealing with a no-deal Brexit. Concerned about what he discovered during the course of that research, Dr Nicholl leaked details to Newsnight and was subsequently attacked in Parliament by the leader of the House of Commons, Jacob Rees-Mogg, who compared him to a discredited quack called Dr Andrew Wakefield. Dr Nicholl went to Westminster and, using a megaphone, called on Mr Rees-Mogg to repeat his comments in an arena where he wouldn't be protected by parliamentary privilege. Rees-Mogg subsequently apologised. Dr Nicholl has been talking me through the timeline. Earlier in the week, I'd been on LBC with Jacob Rees-Mogg. We'd had a bit of a uh, ding-dong, basically, and there'd been a massive publicity about that. So people knew about the story. And so when I'm an art patient clinic, you know, I had patients coming up and all going, good on you. <laughs> I love it, Dr. Nicole, you know, keep going. And, and then actually towards the end of the clinic, I'd had a text from someone saying, uh, Reese Moggs libeled you in Parliament. I, I just thought it was a joke or something like that. Uh, and then uh, I think it was a Daily Mirror journalist had seen a tweet from it. And I realised I had. <laughs> and I was just speechless. I, I really didn't know what to do. I, I you know, haven't been very vocal about the subject. I wasn't sure what to do. I ended up speaking to staff communications in both the trusts I worked in. I wasn't sure whether to get legal advice, you know, to just shut up, keep your head down. And I thought, no, actually. Um, you know, he's done this using parliamentary privilege. Actually, the best way is attack, OK? And I metaphorically loaded my uh, shotgun, jumped on the first train I could get down to London. I tweeted uh, Steve Bray, who's the... Uh, you, you may not know his name, but he's the guy with a large megaphone uh, outside the House of Parliament who's a stop Brexit campaigner who I think every journalist in Parliament l- politely loathes because they can't do an interview without his megaphone in the background. Um, so I tweeted him saying, uh, Dear Steve, can I have your megaphone about 530 uh, so there was me going around College Green shouting, Steve Bray, where's your megaphone? Grabbed the megaphone, went to security. Security going, no, you can't bring that in here. Uh, sorry, I've got an interview with the BBC. Oh, that's fine. Thank you. In we went, find a photographer, say, you, who do you work for? Press Association. Right, film this. And then literally shouted at House of Commons, you know, Jacob rees I dare you to repeat what you said in the House of Commons out here because I will sue you. Okay. Because the fact that he said it in Parliament gave him protection. It's under parliamentary privilege. So for people who didn't hear what Jacob Rees-Mogg said, just tell us and explain why it would be so hurtful and defamatory to say it of a doctor. He um, compared me with, I say doctor, doctor in quotes, okay, Andrew Wakefield. That's doctor in quotes, Andrew Wakefield, who got struck off. Wakefield alleged, okay, falsely, uh, in fact it was fake research basically, um, fake research that suggested there was a link between MMR and autism. That is untrue, okay? I mean, this was published and retracted years ago. And Wakefield has subsequently been struck off. Absolutely struck off by the General Medical Council, okay? So actually, this is the worst insult you could make to any doctor, is to compare him with some struck-off quack doctor. When you heard that Rees-Mogg had made those comments about you in Parliament, how did that make you feel? Uh, uh, In fact, I... I'd seen the text, okay, but I did not hear it, okay. I did not hear his words until I was literally getting off the train at Euston uh, and speaking to Eddie Mayer on LBC, okay. So I was pretty fuming 
when I heard it, to the extent that when he tried to play it back to me again, I said, no, I don't want to hear it. I want to get down to the House of Commons right now. So I was livid. How did you first get embroiled in this whole issue? So I am, I'm the, in fact, the current secretary of the Association of British Neurologists, which is the professional body of neurologists in the UK. And I deal with consultations and all sorts of different things. I deal with confidential documents and all sorts of things, okay? I'm also, uh, I used to be on the council of the Royal College of Physicians, okay? The Royal College of Physicians has no policy on Brexit. Um, it's a charity that looks at patient care. It's been around since the time of Henry VIII. So um, they know quite a bit about healthcare, okay? So first week of January, the Royal College of Physicians approached the ABN uh, and uh, the Association of British Neurologists as they were approaching every specialty society, asking for a volunteer who'd be willing to connect with the Department of Health and advise about contingency planning in the light of a you know, possible no-deal Brexit uh, at the end of March, basically. So this is what became known as Operation Yellow. It, it did. I, I, at the time, I didn't realise that, that was the name, um, but it then became apparent, basically. But essentially, because of your clinical expertise, you were being called on as an expert neurologist... Correct to advise the Department of Health on what the repercussions yes. of a no-deal Brexit might be for your patients and for the NHS in general. Absolutely. And then nothing happened. I mean, really nothing happened. And then I think it was March 13th, uh, I got an email from the Department of Health saying, we're going to send you strictly confidential files. Are you happy to look at these files? OK, yes. And then got sent the password. And in one sense, the files uh, would emphasise were not as bad as I, th- I thought they might be. I mean, this was by no means, you know, every drug in, in neurology. It was around about 20 drugs, largely for treatments of epilepsy. Uh, there was one drug, which was a Parkinson's drug, and there was a traffic light system which you had to grade them by, and essentially red was life-threatening. Amber was not life-threatening, but certainly could cause adverse uh, patient harm, okay? And green was, well, there's some other alternative we can use. Uh, I did feel kind of uncomfortable looking at this because we're thinking what, what could go wrong, but I know I did the best I could. And what was your conclusion? How many of those drugs did you give a red traffic light to? How many a yellow traffic light and how many a green? Absolutely, all of the drugs that were for treatments for epilepsy I, I viewed as a red, okay? So in practical terms then, that means that if there is a no-deal Brexit, your view was that the commonly prescribed drugs for epilepsy might not be available. Uh, well, no, my, my view was that, that, and it wasn't for all of them, okay, um, but it was that there were sufficient issues that they couldn't guarantee a six-week supply. So basically they would, uh, you know, what plans would they have and the plan there essentially would be to fly it in. I think the Department of Health has taken this issue very seriously, okay? So, you know, a huge amount of work's gone into this and I'm not critical of the civil servants at all because ultimately they are ranking pharmaceuticals above food and the expectation is that those items that are marked red would be flown in. Now, my, my criticism of this would be, well, uh, I've had no feedback and I don't know that anyone has about actually how have those plans been implemented, have they been tested out. Um, the reason this matters is certainly the issue about radioisotopes. So um, radioisotopes that are used both in imaging and in treating of cancer patients, for example, uh, get flown in every day. Um, certainly Newsnight reported last month that the Royal College of Radiologists was unhappy with the plans of mitigation because they did a dummy run and it didn't work out as well as it might. So have there been dummy runs on this stuff? I don't know. Okay. Okay. But in terms of the stuff that you know about and that yeah. you investigated... Well, the issue there is I, hand on heart, cannot guarantee that no patient will will be free of harm on basis of those plans. Okay, And that makes me very uncomfortable as a doctor. 
And which patients in particular, or which group of patients, were you particularly concerned about? Uh, well, I think it's difficult to say because I, I would say there are potential... You know, the question you should be asking me is, can I guarantee that every patient's group is going to be OK? And I can't give that guarantee. I'm sure people will do the best they can, but that is not the same as now. The risk is that people with serious neurological conditions who currently are treated routinely yes. on the NHS mm. might, in mm. the event of a no-deal Brexit, have to do without those drugs, with possibly devastating well, consequences. It's, it's tricky. I mean, I can give you an example, and this is why it was ethically very difficult. There's one thing looking at a spreadsheet, okay? There's another thing about looking at a patient. Uh, patient Gillian, who I've known, I've been a consultant, uh, gosh, 17 years, okay? I've known her 17 years, okay? Um, she has a particularly problematic epilepsy. When I first saw her, it took about three or four years to stabilise her epilepsy. She was in and out of hospital three or four times a year, basically. Uh, and we managed to get her stabilised uh, on three different drugs. And one of the drugs she was on was one of the ones that there was a potential stockpiling issue. Now, she lives in uh, Newtown in uh, Mid Wales, basically. Uh, what had happened uh, was that there had been a change in her brand of one of those drugs. And... Two days later, she admitted into hospital in Shrewsbury in status. So status epilepticus is the most serious form of epilepsy. People can die during that. So I'm seeing this patient at the same time as I'm seeing these files. And it's a stockpiling issue. When you say a stockpiling issue, as in... They can't guarantee that they've got six weeks supply of that particular drug. And, um, and so with this patient then, she'd already taken a turn for the worse because her brand and, had... And we hadn't left yet. Because her brand had changed. Correct. Uh, and your fear was that this cocktail of drugs that she needed might then not be available to her, given yes. the seriousness of her condition. Correct. Um, and that is why, in fact, we both went to Newsnight. Uh, you know, courage to her, she went on camera, I went on camera. That's yeah. the point at which you decided, yeah. even though you'd been given these files confidentially, mm. that you couldn't keep silence about them. Correct, yeah. If there aren't the drugs available post-Brexit... What are your well, well, there is, There's absolute risk of patient harm, that's, and, and I don't think that's theoretical. I think there will be um, patient harm. I actually think it is in, inevitable that some patients will die, but it's impossible to quantify that number. It could be a very small number or it could be a very large number, and because of the uncertainty, it is impossible really to, to quantify that. How did the story develop then after you'd been on news now? That itself is interesting, actually, because I haven't had a pipsqueak out of the Department of Health since, OK? And uh, they didn't try and attack me at all, um, but they certainly did try and attack the broadcaster. Um, so weekend after the news night appeared, there was a Mail on Sunday story. You know, Matt Hancock accuses BBC of scaremongering, OK? Health Secretary Matt Hancock. Health Secretary Matt Hancock. What I hadn't realised was I'd actually stirred up a SH1T storm because of course he was going to be leader of, he was going for leader of the Conservative Party which I just hadn't anticipated at all so the idea that some of the no deal plans weren't safe was um, not pleasant okay and uh, so they went to shoot the messenger you know, shoot the broadcaster rather than the uh, whistleblower and it all went very quiet um, but then when uh, Yellowhammer broke in the Sunday Times I kind of saw this and thought Clearly, I was contributing to Yellowhammer. So when you know Michael Gove said that this was the, the worst-case scenario, I knew that wasn't true because I'd helped contribute into the base scenario, which Yellowhammer is, basically. You know, I, I was you know, flabbergasted. So the Sunday Times broke the story, a uh, very full leak of mm. Operation Yellowhammer, which you then realised that was the operation that you were contributing Absolutely. to. I, you know, I, and when government said that the story in the Sunday Times was presenting the worst-case scenario, 
In fact, it wasn't the worst case. It wasn't the worst case, and I know. And in a sense, I, I thought, well, actually, Yellowhammer is just one big jigsaw puzzle, and I just got one piece. So what I did, actually, I, I thought, well, sod it. I'm going to send the same files I sent to Newsnight to the Sunday Times, and uh, let's see what's changed since March. They published last week in the Sunday Times, and the jaw-dropping part of all of this is the Sunday Times then approached the Royal College of Physicians, who'd been asked to give advice, and no one from the Department of Health has approached the Royal Physicians since March for an update on Yellowhammer. So the updated plan in Yellowhammer, you could literally put on a blank sheet of paper. So the government are winging it. Then LBC, the radio station, Absolutely. get involved. Well, they got involved because of the Sunday Times story. They rang me up and said, oh, we know it's the story in the Sunday Times you quoted. Uh, in fact, the British Medical Association have got a report coming out tomorrow that's embargoed on Brexit, describing Brexit as uh, you know catastrophic. Would you like to come on our station? So, uh, yeah, fine. Uh, so I was booked in to speak to Nick Ferrari at quarter to nine. Then I get a phone call five minutes before saying, ah, sorry, we're going to have to bump you because uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg's come a bit early. Uh, so I'm sorry, thanks for coming in. Well, I said, well, that's a bit rude, because you asked me. Uh, oh, uh, Well, OK, we'll let you on, but you can ask one question. Anyway, whole big storm with that. Um, and the storm was because you asked a very pointed question. I asked a very pointed very question. Smart. And I asked them, which I think is the only question which every journalist should ask every single politician that supports an old deal Brexit, and it's just this is what level of mortality are you willing to put up with in the event of a no-deal Brexit? What level of mortality? How many deaths Absolutely. are you willing to countenance in the name of a no-deal Brexit? Correct. And people say, oh, that's a harsh question. I'm <laughs> sorry, if you're doing contingency planning, it's the only question that matters. And that led to Jacob Rees-Mogg's subsequent attack on you Well, even in between Parliament. that, I mean, I, I felt then, so I really have had a busy week, because then the Victoria Derbyshire show rang me up, uh, I was in the Victoria Derbyshire show on Tuesday. Again, I had an, a government, uh, an MP who apparently is on the Health Select Committee, basically suggesting that Yellowhammer is the worst-case scenario. So I had to correct them on that again, basically. So it's this false narrative that it's the worst-case scenario. Um, and as uh, How would you describe it then, if it's not a worst-case scenario? Well, I can only base it on what is in the Sunday Times as what they describe as a reasonable base scenario, OK? This is not at the furthest extremes of possibility. No. What you've done, your contribution to Operation Yellowhammer in relation to neurology drugs, and mm. presumably the other contributions to Operation mm. Yellowhammer, are a reasonable expectation yes. of what might happen. I, absolutely so. And and the other reason I thought this was not the worst case scenario, again, was because of other government ministers. So if you go back to February, Stephen Hammond, who then was a junior health minister, wrote to a Tory MP and said that they were stockpiling body bags in the event of a no-deal Brexit I, I mean, that, I just couldn't believe. And that, I mean, obviously, I didn't see that document, but that was in the public domain. And Jacob Rees-Mogg then takes to Parliament to yeah. trash your reputation, or attempt to. He attempted to. This was, as I said, Thursday morning. I was in art patients, uh, seeing patients. And because of the whole LBC stuff, every single patient was asking me about it. We'd all had a bit of a laugh about it, and it was all good banter and things like that. And then in the middle, you know, I get a text uh, from someone saying, have you seen what he said? Uh, and I genuinely thought it was a joke, and then I, my, my jaw just hit the floor, basically. I mean, and he hasn't repeated that allegation outside of Parliament. He has now 
apologised yes. to you. Is that sufficient for you to draw a line under it? I, I am. You know, I think it is important that he did apologise. All of us make mistakes. Doctors make mistakes. Politicians make mistakes. I think it is important he does apologise in Parliament because that's where he said it. Okay. Uh, I've had all, all sorts of, oh, maybe he should resign and things like that. And that actually got me thinking about this because I think it's not my job to ask that. Okay. I think he made a mistake. It was a very unwise mistake on Thursday. He has apologised for it. I think we should go back to the very question I asked at the beginning, <laughs> which is, and it doesn't go away, is that really, what is the rate of harm you're willing to accept in the event of a no-deal Brexit? And keep repeating that. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fed up with the argument that I've had since April from every single Brexiteer, which follows along the lines of this, which is, oh, that's Operation Fair. Well, hold on, I did contribute to Yellowhammer. I am an expert on this. Yeah, I know, but I know some of the NHS, they voted Brexit. Uh, yeah, but have they were they involved with the Yellowhammer? And then they just walk away. What about you, though, in this, David? Because you are somebody who believes passionately in Remain. You are a, a campaigner for yes, Remain. Yes, I did. Yeah, in fact, I did say use your brain, vote Remain back at, during the referendum. Is there a conflict between what you've done in putting this information out there into the public domain and being so vocal about it and your own personal political position? That's a good question um, and I think the answer to that is no, okay, because I don't think one views on Brexit has any influence on what treatment there is for epilepsy or neuropathic pain, end of, okay. Um, so I think, you know, if I got it wrong, um, I think that people would be having quiet words with me to say I got it wrong, which suggests to me that I've got it right. What's it felt like being a whistleblower? I know that over the years, I've spoken to you and interviewed you on a number of occasions on various campaigns that you've been involved with. But certainly to my memory, this is the first time you've been a whistleblower in such a high profile issue. How has that felt uh, for you? I think Thursday, you know, Rhys Mogg crossed a line because uh, essentially he trashed my reputation in Parliament, uh, compared me with what I would regard as the worst kind of irresponsible doctor who's prepared to produce fake research, fake news. Uh, get struck off, okay? And I had no way, I had no right of reply, I couldn't sue him, I, you know, I, the only thing I could do was kick up a fuss. And that I did. I, I felt he'd shat on me in Parliament, frankly. Which is why, uh, I, in fact, you know, I think the best way of treating with a bully is show the bully you won't be bullied, but bring some witnesses. And that's precisely what I did. You would like Rhys Mogg now to draw a line under this by saying sorry, not just in the public domain as he has done, mm. but in Parliament where he made the original allegation. Absolutely. He made the mistake in the House, so he should apologise to the House. Dr David Nicholl. Now, Michael Gove, the minister in charge of No Deal Planning, has said that the leaked Operation Yellow Hammer report was old and that the government had taken significant additional steps since then to ensure that the UK was prepared to leave on October the 31st, deal or no deal. In the last three weeks, he said, there has been a significant acceleration in what the government has been doing. On the question of body bags raised by Dr Nicholl, the Department for Health and Social Care said the department is working with partners across government in the health sector and in industry to prepare for any possible disruption in the supply chain. 
They said that whilst this does not mean we are expecting such disruption, the government is preparing for all exit scenarios. These include sensible strategies for devices and consumables, including body bags, that come to the UK from or through the EU, such as precautionary stockpiling by suppliers, to ensure that the supply of essential products is not disrupted. Thanks very much indeed for listening.